Let's pray. That's probably a good start. Jesus, it is so good to be together, both here present, watching live online or watching later online. Thank you that you've called us to journey life together as friends, as family, and to do that always centered around you. Amen. Amen. I wasn't here present last week. Uh, in fact, I had a tremendous opportunity to have a little bit of a mini retreat. I went across to the islands of Isla and Jura last week, which is just absolutely stunning. Uh, well known for, um, I was going to say Irish whiskey, that would be dumb, Scottish whiskey. And um, just had a fantastic time and we opened the scriptures together, the side of the sea, uh, this time last week and just had the most incredible time together as a bunch of guys. And uh, so I wasn't here, but I did enjoy watching Kate Crosby uh, speak and I listened to that and I watched that during the week. And her beginning introduction I found to be really interesting. She retold this story, how her and Dave on their first foreign holiday together were on a plane on a flight to Spain, to a city called Bilbao. But it, during the flight, an announcement came in Spanish to everyone that was on the plane. And it was met by audible groans and moans of, oh, of discontent. And the two of them left wondering, oh my goodness, what could that possibly mean? And what it did mean was that due to poor weather, the flight could not land in Bilbao, but was redirected to Santiago de Compostela, is that right? Which is a six-hour bus journey away from the original uh, place of where you were meant to go to. So you can imagine the Spaniards, they're listening to this announcement, met with these audible groans. And it reminded me of a similar time and a similar occasion in Spain. Four years ago, I am in the city of Murcia, or as it's locally pronounced, Murcia. And I am there uh, on a Sunday morning, uh, about nine o'clock in the morning, in amongst two, three thousand other people about to start running the Mercia Marathon. I've traveled there, I've come a long way, and I'm lined up, ready to go, as I would be used to on many occasions, except this time and I'm in amongst lots of people that don't speak the same lingo as I do. And we're there anticipating, I'm looking at the watch going, we should have started like 10 minutes ago. What's going on? I know the Spaniards are quite relaxed about life and all the rest, but we need to get going here. And then this announcement came similarly to what happened to you guys. This long announcement in Spanish. And I'm thinking, I have got no idea what's going on. What on earth is being said right now? And I'm watching the faces of other people around me to try and read the situation, to try and understand what on earth possibly could be happening here. And after about a five-minute announcement, no joke, there was this uproar, this like awful sound of, oh, no, ah, oh, ah, oh, really animated. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, that sounds really, really bad whatever's just been said, must be very similar to your experience. 2,000 people, and I am just thinking, oh my goodness, what's happened? They can't have canceled it. Oh my goodness, I'll come on and say, there's no way. And fortunately, 
and this nice Spaniard who could speak English interpreted for me that simply due to the rain, like rain, we're used to rain, I'm thinking, get used to it, you lot. Due to the rain, a few puddles on the surface of the road, which they had to just deal with, and the police had to shut down certain roads, the, the marathon start time would be delayed by half an hour. And that was it. And everyone dispersed off on their merry way, and we came back half an hour, and we did the run as was normal. Now, the point that Kate made last week was very different to the point that I'm making from this wonderful story. The point I'm trying to make from this story is I felt left out. I felt like an outsider. I did not speak the lingo, and I did not know what the heck was going on. Has anyone else felt like that ever before? You've been in a situation, you're looking around, and you just feel like the only one. I'm often there, you know when you're in a crowd and someone tells a joke and it's like the punchline comes and everyone's laughing and you kind of, you don't really get it and you kind of laugh along because of peer pressure and you don't want to be the dork that doesn't really understand the joke. I'm that kind of person. It takes me a while to actually get the joke or I need someone else to explain it to me later but because of peer pressure I go along with it. It's that feeling of being kind of left out. More significantly, Perhaps you could be the person that feels like you're the only one that struggles with a particular issue. Perhaps you could be uh, the person who looks around in these environments and thinks, goodness, God seems to be blessing everyone around me except me. And you feel that sense of, uh, am I the only one? Am I the one who's been left out? And many of those things, of course, are not true. But I do want us to look at a well-known character today, this morning, as we unpack what it must have been like to be left out. And so we're going to read about the person of Thomas. We read from John's Gospel, where John 20, I'm just looking, there's still only nine people watching. Evie Gardner, God bless you. She has uh, commented, I've basically been commenting saying, uh, hi, who is watching live? And only Evie has been uh, brave enough to stick her head above the parapet and no one else has so far. Bless you if you are watching line. That's going to be down to about four by the end of this, I reckon. John 20, 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Isn't that just brilliant? The doors were locked and Jesus just rocks up. No wonder he says, peace be with you. You'd be absolutely terrified. It's like, how the flip do you get in? Then he says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, bless you. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. So this well-known story, it's found in John's Gospel. It's the only one of the four Gospels which it's actually documented, this particular story. And it's actually where, we, uh, where Thomas gets this name, this nickname of Doubting Thomas. And it's a bit unfair. And it's a bit harsh, really, as we're going to look at within the minute. But he's not the only disciple that was given a nickname. James and John, they were two of Jesus' closest disciples. Because of their temperament, because of their personality, Jesus actually nicknames them. He gives them the nickname Sons of Thunder, which is kind of because of their volatile kind of behavior and temperament, which isn't very nice, but actually Sons of Thunder, that actually sounds quite cool. I would like to be known as the Son of Thunder. That would be quite cool. Jesus also renames Simon to Cephas, which means Peter, which translated to our language is Peter, which means rock. That's a great nickname. I'd love to be known as the rock. That's pretty cool. Sons of Thunder, the rock. But to be known as Thomas, the doubter, or doubting Thomas, that's not much crack. In fact, it's kind of us through the generations that have actually given him that term. At least it's still better than being known as the betrayer. Not many children get called Judas each year on the most popular boys' names. But anyway, Jesus first appears to his disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. Where was he? Why wasn't Thomas there? Did Jesus have in mind to do what he did? Did he use this? as an opportunity to display a le- and teach a lesson for them and for us in the future. How do you think Thomas felt when he wasn't there and everyone else was there? Why was he left out? How does Thomas respond to what the disciples tell him? We don't necessarily know the answers to these questions. But you know, often when you're reading the scriptures at home, when you open your Bible at home and you read a passage, it's really good to ask questions. Ask questions about the text, about the story, what was going on, how people were, what must they have been thinking, and begin to put yourself into that place. And I tell you, it begins to really enrich our time as we read the scriptures, as we invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us through those. And again, sometimes we don't know the answers. Sometimes we do. Sometimes really clever people who really understand and and commentate and bring their own revelation to what the scriptures mean actually begin to unpack and help us as we personally read the Bible for ourselves. This is how Thomas responds. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Even though Jesus has pre-told both Thomas and his disciples that he would die, but that he would rise again, they didn't get it. He said that he'd be turned into the hands of men, that he would suffer cruelty, die and rise again. It went against Jewish beliefs and understanding. It required a physical eyewitness, perhaps physical touch, evidenced appearance to convince Thomas and the other disciples 
that Jesus indeed had risen from the dead. Thomas is not satisfied by the eyewitness account of the other disciples. He simply chooses not to believe unless he has a personal encounter with Jesus. Where's the point in what all of this is for us? Well, the point is that we all need a personal encounter with Jesus. We will not see him face to face this side of heaven. But we all need a personal encounter with Jesus. Remember the point that I made earlier? Sometimes you can look around and you can see, oh, Flip, she's really got it. She's really, she's, she's, I want something that she's got because she seems to really know Jesus. Or he seems to just have a real sense of peace about, he's a real godly man whatever it might be. And we begin, don't we, in our humanness to kind of interpret things, sometimes accurately, often inaccurately. But does that spur us on to press in, to find him for ourselves, to have encounters with the living uh, Jesus for ourselves, or does it just make us kind of fade away and give up and feel not good enough and feel like we don't have what it takes or God doesn't love us like he loves such and such or her over there Jesus says ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and the door will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks the door will be opened in Jeremiah 29, after the most well-known and loved verses in Jeremiah 29, says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I remember years ago, a Christian book called The God Chasers. Anyone remember that? God Chasers, written by Tommy Tenney, I think his name was. It was... It was a fairly popular book doing the rounds at the time, and it was, it was really, really helpful. And, and it was really a, about encouraging people to uh, chase after God, to seek after God, to find him in our lives. And I remember, uh, the one bit I remember from the book is he uses a brilliant story, a brilliant analogy of about a, a father or a mother playing hide-and-seek with the children. And he basically told this story that, that God sometimes is like the, the parent who's playing hide-and-seek with the children, that hides in such a place that can be found, not in a really difficult, obscure place. So you imagine your children, I'm looking around, there's two or three uh, real wee ones here this morning. You're really welcome, by the way. You imagine kind of when they're really, you're not going to go and hide in the most obscure, you're not going to hide in the attic that a child can't get to. You're not going to hide out in the shed that, you know, two days later they might find you. You're going to hide behind the curtain. You might even hide with a, a wee foot kind of stuck out that, that can be seen because you want to be found, because the child has an attention span of about 40 seconds and needs to, be, needs to find mum, needs to find dad because the game's rubbish otherwise. God sometimes is like that, withdraws himself from ourselves why to invite us to beckon us to 
uh, to seek him, to search him, to find him. Thomas is in this place where the other disciples have seen the Lord. I must see him for myself. We must see him, encounter him for ourselves. Thomas has to wait a full week. John writes that a week later, Jesus appears to the disciples again. This time, Thomas is there. Can you imagine a whole week, a whole week having to wait? You know, why not a day? Why not a month? Why not, why a week? And why has he come in the same way that he comes in the first time to all the disciples? Each of those days must have been agony. Each day, Thomas thinking, is it true? Just hoping, just believing, oh my goodness, I hope he is. I hope what my friends are telling me is true, but I, I just don't know. Unless I see him, each day comes and each day goes. Jesus appears to Thomas and he says to him, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Wow. Can you imagine a visual and physical evidence encounter with the risen Jesus? Stop doubting and believe. And it's really that word, isn't it, which we have later coined the phrase and given Thomas the unfair nickname of Doubting Thomas. And it is unfair because he wasn't the only one. There were others who also um, were doubting. The other disciples doubted also. The other three Gospels recount, remember that Jesus first appeared himself to the women, to Mary Magdalene, to Joanna, Mary the mother of James. But the other disciples would not believe their account when they went and told them. Luke 24 says, but they, that's the other disciples, did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Thomas wasn't the only disciple that doubted that Jesus had actually risen. What I love about his story and the other disciples' story is this, is we can all relate to that, can't we? We've all had our doubts. God, those moments, are you really real? That's the most doubtful doubt. God, did you really say that? Is your word true? Doubting in his own ability. Before we come into land, we've got a few others who are watching online. Corinne Latham, God bless you. Roisin McConnell, us too. Do you reckon Jeff's watching it, or do you think he's making the coffee? And Brian Murr, we are watching on the TV, so didn't see the chat. Welcome, Brian, Roisin, and anyone else. We're coming into land. Jesus uses this encounter with Thomas as a means to communicate powerfully to thousands and millions of disciples, and that includes us from generations since it actually happened. Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, Thomas, you have believed. Blessed are those 
who have not seen and yet have believed. This one encounter between Jesus and Thomas lays the foundation for what now is known as evidence-based faith and sola fide, faith alone. Evidence-based faith simply means this, that faith that is built upon evidence, what we have seen, what we know. And here in this passage is uh, the evidence, real life, what actually really happened, documented by John, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples. I know I've banged on about this a lot, The Chosen. It's a pretty good thing. Just go watch it if you haven't watched it. Download it as a free app. There's a brilliant, brilliant episode where the first kind of 10 minutes, you watch John uh, interviewing all of the disciples and key, moment, key people to recall their events of what happened. And John is writing them down. And he's writing them down because he's going to write his own gospel account of what really happened. As well, also, throughout all of the episodes, I love Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector, he's portrayed as this autistic uh, man who constantly is writing notes. You see him, he has a little book and he has a little pen. And in his kind of quirkiness, you just see him kind of writing like this the whole time, documenting, writing down what actually really happened, creating and compiling evidence of what really did happen. Nicky Gumbel uh, leads HTB, a very well-known church in London. Uh, he was responsible for compiling and still pioneering the Alpha course, which many of you will have done and will have known about. And Nicky himself was, uh, was a barrister uh, before he became an ordained Church of England minister. He studied law at Cambridge, which is where he became a Christian. And in his earliest years as a student at university, uh, because he was studying law, he was used to actually finding the importance of evidence, of course, because that's what uh, people in law do. They look for evidence to prove or disprove certain things. And he was surrounded by a bunch of Christians, and they annoyed him. And so what he thought he would do is seek to disprove Christianity using actual uh, evidence which he could find. And if you've done the Alpha Course or you've heard his testimony, you will know that Nicky found so much compelling written evidence to support the reality of Jesus as a person and the things that he did, that it actually was enough evidence to support and convince him to find faith for himself. This one account that actually happened, it gives us evidence-based faith. And it's important that, as, again, as we read scriptures for ourselves, that we allow the evidence, the truth, to really um, shape our very lives. Secondly, uh, this encounter that Thomas has paves the way for what we now have as uh, sola, sola fide faith, which simply put means faith alone. Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We don't get to see Jesus this side of heaven. But if we are a believer here today, we believe and we have faith based on what we read. We believe and we have faith because the Holy Spirit has made Jesus real to us 
and has evidenced himself in our lives. And we have encountered his presence and his reality. The final word to say is in these days, we need to encounter his presence. We need to have encounters with the risen Jesus. Um, goodness, so many of the songs that we've sung this morning just were so true. Hold on to our hope. He's in the waiting. Boy, doesn't it feel like we've been waiting a long time. It's wonderful again that we can gather like this. But we need to experience his presence in our own lives. We need to encounter him. Let's stand together. We're going to worship and then we're going to pray.